Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue. It's a little unusual title to the message today, but it is really a profound truth. It is a profound truth. Sound minds are not ashamed. Sound minds are not ashamed. The privilege of preaching and teaching, this is something that is just, it's something that has captured my heart over the years. The privilege of preaching and teaching is to let the text of the Bible passage that you're studying or going through, that you let the passage take you where it's going. This is very important. It is not our job as preachers and teachers of the Word of God to hijack isolated verses of the Bible to say what we want them to say. That's not our place. Our place is to go where the text takes us. And the pastor's job and the preacher's job and the teacher's job is to accurately explain that and certainly let the scriptures challenge us with ways of application, but nevertheless to get the sense of what the scriptures are and to teach them as they are. Now with that, already in this series, I have been amazed how this series is making us come face to face with the nitty gritty of the Christian life. I knew that was kind of coming down the road, but I didn't know how strong that was right off the bat here in chapter one. The theme of this series, Standing Strong in the Last Days, is clearly a sobering call for us as believers to live a life of true discipleship as Christians, focusing on what Jesus focused on when he was here. Hey, don't say you're Christ-like if you don't have the same cares and concerns as he did. You're not Christ-like. Do you see what I'm getting at here? If I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to live like he did. I won't be perfect. He was perfect. We get that. But nevertheless, the purpose and the goals of his life are clearly spelled out in Scripture, and those should be the same purpose and goals for our life. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what am I known for as a Christian? Okay, what am I living for as a Christian? Second Timothy, you know already that Paul finds himself on death row, basically, just a matter of time before he is going to come under a final judgment and he is going to lose his head, literally. He was martyred for Christ. His head was cut off. They figured that would shut his mouth. And of course, he still speaks today through the pages of scripture and will forever. But nevertheless, he finds himself pretty much alone in this crummy dungeon in Rome, awaiting his departure. He talks about his departure in chapter four. And he's got some strong things to say because he had led a young man to Christ years ago by the name of Timothy, who went into the ministry, traveled with him on missionary journeys, pastored a church. And yet he was finding that Timothy was struggling. He was struggling. Uh, it says he was very possibly had a issue with being courageous. He was timid. He was fearful. It says he was crying over things. And yes, real men do cry. And this is where he found himself. Now, if you can't relate to that and you say, oh, come on, just, you know, just get tough and, and just uh, not a big deal. The Christian life isn't that hard and all that. Well, the Christian life isn't necessarily hard, but I'll tell you this, friend, if you're plugged in the way Jesus wants you to, it will definitely be challenging. If we are standing the way he wants us to, and that is really what this 
is about. Now, continuing on, we'll start with the verse that we spent a lot of time on last week and then move on. In verse 7, it says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Now, this is not a right fear. This is not a a reverential respect like we have towards God. Here is the word timid or coward, cowardly. Okay, God has not given us that kind of spirit as Christians, but what has he given us? He's given us the spirit of power. We get that from the Holy Spirit. Love, that's seeing things as God does. And a sound mind to where we're thinking the way we should. Now, how does this sound mind manifest itself? Well, it's in the title today. Sound minds are not ashamed. Okay? You might say, well, I understand the issues, but I find myself at times ashamed, or I find myself on a regular basis afraid to take a stand for Christ, afraid to share the gospel with people. Well, let me say this, friend, and I'm not saying you're insane or I'm insane when we face those things. What I'm saying, though, is this. When we find ourselves that way, fearful, ashamed, or whatever, we don't have a sound mind at that point. Because if we were seeing as God sees, we'd be a whole lot more consistent and faithful and bold. And this is what we see in the text. Verse 8. Paul then says, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And so let's look at several aspects here that we're going to be challenged with today. First is this, what does he say? He says clearly in verse eight, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, Where is that testimony found? It's found in the gospel, okay? The word testimony means the record, the record. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the record of the Lord found in the gospel. In Romans chapter one, you can hold your place and turn there or you can just look at it on the screen today. In Romans chapter one, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why was he not ashamed of the gospel? He answers it, for it singular. You understand that? There's not many. For It doesn't say, for they are the power of God. No, there's only one gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the only way people can be saved. Now that makes total sense, doesn't it? That's sound thinking. And so he was not ashamed of it. Now, you notice it says in verse 16, to everyone that believeth, the verse 17, for therein, in the gospel message, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It begins with faith, it ends with faith. As it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. Do you notice it doesn't say faith and works, faith and reformation, faith and service. No, it's faith. Now, once we're saved, should we serve the Lord? Absolutely we should. But that doesn't make you any more saved or lost, okay? The issue of salvation is simply, have you believed the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Again, believe what? Well, the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Three and four is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You might say, okay, 
then what am I supposed to do? Simply believe that as your way to heaven. Trust in Jesus Christ that he made the payment for your sin as your way to heaven. The illustration we like to use, if this is you and me, and my wallet represents all the things we do wrong, which God calls them sin. We're all sinners. God says we've sinned against him, and that sin brings with it a penalty. The wages of sin is death. If we die with our sin, we're already sinners. If we die in that condition, we're going to have to spend forever separated from God in hell. You see, sin separates us from God. Heaven is a perfect place. You got to be perfect. You have to be sinless to get in. Well, none of us are. We're already sinners. So then what are we going to do? Religion says if you do enough good works, that'll take care of things. But nowhere in the Bible does it say good works take away sin. Now, our sin has to be gone for us to get into heaven. There's nothing we could do. But here's the point. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, because we are guilty, because we are condemned, separated from God, unable to save ourselves. This is why Jesus came. He took on flesh, God in the flesh, the sinless son of God. You see, he had to be God because only God is sinless. And yet he had to be man because we needed a substitute. And he was both the God man, the only one who ever was. Jesus came, went to the cross And he took our sin upon himself. And when he did, God poured out his wrath on Jesus. He was buried and he came back from the dead. That's the good news. He did it for you and me. And he offers salvation, eternal life to all who would simply trust in him as savior. When you believe, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the payment he made is good on your behalf. All your sins have been taken care of. But if you don't trust Christ or you say, well, I think he's important. What he did is important, but it's not enough. I also have to do good works to go to heaven. Then you're really not trusting in Christ. You're, it's kind of like this. Okay, no, friend, listen, listen. Jesus, you either trust him or you trust yourself. If you don't trust in him, you're trusting yourself. Well, I think he's, see, if you're saying it's you and Jesus, you're saying that what he did on the cross was not enough. It's only part of it. Well, according to the Bible, that comes under that message and those who preach that comes under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. I want you to see this. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter one. The key is this. If we could have saved ourselves, Jesus would have never come. He would have never suffered and been tortured. He would have never experienced the wrath of the Father poured out on him. He would have never gone through any of it. He wouldn't have needed to go through it if we could save ourselves. But we couldn't. That's why he came. And for all who trust in him as their savior, he gives eternal life. Now, Paul was adamant about this message. Remember, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord found in the gospel. Why? Because the record is the only way you go to heaven. It's the only way. Galatians 1 verse 6, there was a church that was having a problem with this issue. They had believed the gospel. The churches of Galatia, there were several. They had believed the gospel. Paul led many to Christ. He left, he continued on his journey, and then false teachers came in. And here's what they said, listen. Oh yeah, Jesus is necessary, but he's not enough. And they added works to the message of faith. And so Paul writes this letter to explain to them, no guys, listen, it's all by grace. 
It's the gospel of the grace of God. And he says this in Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, a different message, which is not another, which is not true to the real one. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. Now the word pervert, it means to twist and distort into that which is opposite in character. Now you think about that. If you preach a different message than faith alone and Christ alone for salvation, you are actually then preaching a message that doesn't bring salvation, you're preaching a message that brings damnation. This is why this is so serious, okay? Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's what he says about that, verse eight. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed under the anathema of God himself. Now I can imagine, you know, maybe their eyebrows kind of, ooh. And he says, let me be clear, verse nine. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed under the wrath of God. Folks, this is serious with God. There's only one gospel. It's that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose from the grave. And when you trust in him and him alone as your payment for sin, he gives you everlasting life. Any other message that adds to faith alone in Christ alone. Listen, it is an accursed message by God. There's no room for negotiation on this. This is the way it is. Well, I know people, they're well-meaning. Listen, I don't doubt there are well-meaning people. Remember, what does Satan want to do? He wants to mess up the gospel. Why? Because that is the only way people can be saved. And he doesn't mind you acting religious or feeling religious or going out and buying a Bible or even going to church and learning all the Christianese, so to speak. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. And you die without your sins being forgiven. And if you do, you'll spend forever separated from God. A lot of people in hell who trusted in their works for their salvation and not in Christ alone. Folks, sincerity is not a substitute for truth. Listen, if you're going to stand on anything, stand on this. Would you do that? This is what we need to do. Remember, Satan wants to shut the mouths of Christians. This is one of the main ways he keeps people lost. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If he can keep us from sharing the gospel, then people aren't going to be saved. Not as many. And why would we be ashamed if we're seeing things properly? We wouldn't be ashamed if we saw things properly. Listen, if I understand that if I don't share the gospel, if I'm not clear on the gospel in the way I present it, if I understand that because of my failure, there would be less people saved, if I understand that, then it's going to motivate me to share my faith. Now listen, you might say, oh, oh, I'm a Christian and I don't believe I should feel in under any pressure at all. Everything should be light and happy all the time and, and all of, this is the way the Christian life is supposed to be. You didn't get it from the Bible. 
Listen, I know Jesus had a sense of humor. I believe that with all my heart by some of the things that he said. I believe that, okay? Some of the things he said to his disciples, they're comical. But doesn't the Bible also call him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Why? He saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted as sheep that had no shepherd. He had such a burden for the lost because he knew that's why he came. He knew that's why he was going to go to the cross. And so therefore, he did what he did and he lived the life he did. And he put up with what he did and the persecution and the crucifixion for you and for me because of love. See, if people don't believe the gospel, they will spend forever in hell when they die. Now, this is what 2 Timothy is all about. People don't need to do anything to end up in hell. There's only one message of salvation. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I don't understand that people don't need to do. I I thought the more evil you are, the more chances you're going to hell. No, friend, listen, we come into the world as sinners. We're already disqualified. We're already under condemnation. The only way to get out from that condemnation is to trust in Jesus Christ as your payment for sin. That's the only way. John 3.18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. That's the only reason. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Do we understand this? There's only one message of salvation. So our first point is this, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord found in the gospel. In other words, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said he wasn't ashamed, why? Because he knew it was the only way people could get saved and he was ready to preach it. But secondly, we find in verse eight, don't be ashamed to stand with those who stand for the gospel, okay? Now this isn't talked about hardly at all because people get uncomfortable verbally giving support for someone else. Listen, I know people in ministry fall. I know they mess up, okay? The man who led me to Christ, I love him with all my heart. He's in heaven now. He was one of the greatest soul winners who ever lived, but he fell through adultery. Do you know what's interesting? Yes, he was out of the formal ministry, so to speak. He was never a pastor again, never but he still, once he, he came to grips with that, he lived in regret. It was awful what he lived with. But you know what he did? He said, you know, I fell, but I still have a mouth. And he literally went all over the world till he was in his 90s, preaching the gospel and teaching people how to share the gospel. He did what he could. Yes, he messed up. But friend, we mess up, but it's not over until the Lord takes you. Now, I got off track on that. But here's the point in verse 8. Don't be ashamed to stand with those who stand for the gospel. Have the courage to stand with those who are true to the faith. Don't be afraid to be associated with them. And don't apologize for them. Oh, I hate that. And listen, let me get personal this morning. Don't apologize for me. If you talk to somebody or share the faith or whatever, they come to one of our programs and they hear the gospel and and somebody's got a word of criticism, you ought to be standing up and saying, no, no, that's not true. That's not the way it is. You don't know what you're talking about. I told you the first week, pastors are human. 
If you won't stand with your pastor, who will stand with your pastor? Who will do it? See, we all should have each other's back. Is that not true? And friend, let me tell you something, especially if you're a member of Northland, if you're a member of this church and they attack me for what I say, they're attacking you because you said you agree and you're a member here. When we keep our mouth shut, you might say, oh no, this is all about Jesus. It is about Jesus and he's the one telling us this through the scriptures. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, Paul says. You know, it's really pathetic in chapter four, Paul talks about when he first got there, this second trip to Rome, when he first got there and he says, at my, basically he's talking about his trial, at my first defense, okay, meeting, he says, no one stood with me, everybody had left. Here's Paul, the great soul winner, the church founder, the lover of men, the one who poured himself out for people. And here he was, he was arrested and he came to this initial hearing. And as he stood there, there wasn't anybody there to speak up for him and to support him. Everybody left. Pretty sad. See folks, if what we have is so important, if the message we have is so important, we need to stand for it and we need to stand with those who are true to it. I've lost opportunities over the years, ministry opportunities, because I have stood with those who stood for the truth. And if people find out and say, oh, you run with so-and-so or you're a friend of so-and-so, and they kind of back off. You know what I say? Fine, back off. Because when people are loyal to the gospel, I'm going to stand with them. And so should you. Yeah, but what if down the road, what if the person falls? Hey, what if down the road you fall? We only have today, right? And listen, if there's a proven track record, trust it. Believe it. I say, doesn't that make you uncomfortable talking about yourself? No, because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, folks. We need to stand together and you need to support those who stand on the truth of God. Years ago, uh, not a years ago, it was last year sometime, I heard about somebody, I wasn't there. I wish I would have been there. I heard about somebody criticizing a dear friend of mine. They're making fun of him. And I heard about this later, and it's like, boy, I wish I would have been there. He's one of the greatest preachers of the gospel today, alive. I believe that. My dear friend, Yankee Arnold. Somebody was, was doing, criticizing him in some way. It's like, and not only that, but the person criticizing knew the gospel and was like-minded on the gospel. It's like, how can you do that? How many souls have you won to Christ? He's led thousands and thousands to Christ. Now I'm going to stand with him. And if that breaks my fellowship with somebody else, so be it. I'll stand with those who are true to the message and who are proclaiming it. We need to stand strong in the last days. Do we get it? We shouldn't be shooting each other. It's an issue of loyalty. Begins with loyal to the word of God. Be willing to side with those who side with God. And there's no more important area than the gospel. Okay, very little loyalty today. Most people, even believers, are consumers and takers, not soldiers of the cross. 
Oh yeah, I, I go there. I, I like to listen. I, I find the message interesting and all that. Are you standing for it? Are you taking it and standing for it? It's what we need to do. When your brothers and sisters who are like-minded get flack and get attacked, are you standing with them because of where they stand? That's why it has nothing to do with personality or looks or anything like that. When a leader is in the heat of the battle and his people will not risk their comfort and stand with him, it pierces his heart and brings great discouragement. Years ago, we had a family. They were members. Now, they, I, they grew into understanding things better, and I love them to this day. I love them. They're no longer here in our church. They moved. But uh, they would still be members here if they were in the area. But you know, I, I can remember. Now, they were members of the church here. And uh, they were talking to somebody, and, and, and they witnessed to him, shared the gospel. Well, you know, you need to... Uh, here's what they told them. You need to find a church in the area that's true in the gospel or that's, that's right biblically. And it's like, you said that? Now, I didn't ask him that, but I was thinking it. You said that? You should have said, hey, you need to come to our church. Our church has got it. Our church has the gospel. Our church is true to the word. This is where you need to come. Well, you know, I don't know if I should, you know. Why not? What's wrong with us? Third point is this. If we do stand for the gospel, we are going to partake of the afflictions that go with it. Do you see that in the last part of verse 8? But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Oh no, not for me. I don't want any suffering. Or some of us would say, I'm too old for that. No, friend, we need to be willing. Let me show you an interesting verse. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Hold your place in, in Timothy. We'll be back. Galatians chapter 5. Paul touches on something in Galatians chapter 5 that I, I just find fascinating. Now, Galatians, remember, they're the churches that he wrote to to get them straightened out because they were starting to add works to the gospel. He blasted the false teachers. He blasted them. And boy, I'll tell you what, did he pay for it? I mean, they hunted him. They hunted him all over Asia, Asia Minor. And there were some that were saying they were Judaizing teachers, okay? In other words, they were Jewish false teachers. And they were adding the works of the law and the things from the Mosaic law and putting that as additions to the gospel, adding works to the gospel. And he says in Galatians 5.11, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, because he did. Remember, he was a Pharisee, a lost Pharisee who actually enjoyed and was in some ways in charge of taking Christians and dragging them and getting them thrown in jail because of this false gospel, this false message they were preaching until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he trusted Christ. And then he became the great warrior that he was for Christ. And this very false message that he had preached and believed and propagated, now he stood against because it was false. But look what he says. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, which is from the law, the Mosaic law, why do I yet suffer persecution? He says, if I was adding works to the gospel, I wouldn't be persecuted. Do we understand that? 
Why do we get persecuted? Because we are not adding works to the gospel. Look at how this fits. Why do I yet suffer persecution? For then, if I was putting works into the gospel, then is the offense of the cross ceased. Do you see that? The offense of the cross? You might say, what do you mean the offense? Why, why is the cross term used to talk about the gospel, the gospel of grace? Why is, would there be an offense? Why would the message of the cross be offensive? I'll tell you why. Those who reject the gospel will often be offended by it because it is a blow to their pride. That is why. This is a spiritual war, folks. It is a blow to their pride. Why do I say that? Well, our foundational verses of this church make it very clear. They're right over here. We'll have them on the screen. Look at it. For by grace are you saved. Unmerited kindness. Undeserved mercy. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't deserve it. For by grace are you saved. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And that not of yourselves. See, this is where people can't take it. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. All gifts are free. Can't earn it. It's a gift. If you have to pay for it or do something for it, it's no longer a gift. For by grace you say through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Look at the next part. Not of works, verse 9. We'll look at the last phrase. Lest any man should, what? Boast. When you tell somebody you can't work your way to heaven, you can't be good enough to get to heaven, your works have no value in getting you to heaven. It's a blow to their pride. And if they're not willing to biblically repent, which is change your mind about what you think or change your thinking, if you're not willing to do that, you are going to launch out and attack those who believe it was all what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's offensive to them. Let me tell you something. In this sense, I've offended many people for many years because they find this message that we preach offensive. And you know why they do? Because they're still trusting in their works to some extent. They still think they can earn it to some extent. They still think they can add something to what Jesus did on the cross. It's offensive to them. There's the offense of the cross. And you know what I say? I don't want to be offensive, but if my message offends you, you need to have a change of mind. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if my message offends you, I don't want to offend you, but if that's what happens, that's what happens. And that's the same with the Apostle Paul. No different. Now back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Linking this to... Um, Verse 8, verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So when you stand strong on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and if you're standing strong on that, you also believe in eternal security. I'd say, why is that? Well, it's simple. If you can lose your salvation by sinning, then Jesus didn't pay for all your sin. If you keep your salvation by behaving, then you're trusting in your good works. But if you say, listen, my eternal destiny is completely, from beginning to end, wrapped up in what Jesus did for me on the cross, I'll see you there. 
because that's what it's about. And by the way, getting back to verse eight, remember, you're a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. So let's fellowship in our persecution a little bit, eh? To borrow that from the Canadians, eh? Let's fellowship in our persecution. And you know what? It's a good company to fellowship with. It really is. People who love salvation by grace and love to share it. Verse nine, who hath saved us, God, the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, it wasn't based on our performance, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Did you know that the plan of salvation was in place before creation ever took place? Did you know that? It's true. God did not come up with a plan of salvation when Adam and Eve sinned. He just started telling them about what he knew they were going to do and what he had planned for all eternity. And the first telling of that was Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman who would crush the devil. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 1, 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Man, it was there. God promised eternal life. Based on what? Faith in Christ? When did he promise it? When did he come up with the plan? Before the world, literally the ages began. Before eternity began. Now that's a mind blower. How does that work, okay? Uh, I don't know, but it's all related in the text. You might say, well, don't you understand it better than that? Well, to be honest with you, I don't need to fully understand it. God said it, it's good enough for me. He can't lie. How about you? It's what he says. See, his purpose and grace is found in the message of the gospel and in the plan of salvation. We see that in verse 10. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. This message, we see it over and over, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. He was, that's all they ever do around there. They do that, they do the gospel. They always give the gospel. He always does that, that, that wallet thing all the time. Why do we do this? It's because we love you. It's because we love people who listen and who watch. We want them to know how they can have eternal life. We want them to be sure they're going to heaven when they die because they are going to die. We all are. Oh, not me. I eat oatmeal and carrot juice. Drink carrot. That, I'm, I'm good. I'm set. No, you're not. No, you're not. It's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. The only ones who won't die are those who get raptured, and I hope it's us. And I believe it is. Abolish death, okay? The word abolish death or abolished. To render entirely useless. Wow, isn't that great? Through what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, death is useless. Why? Well, I have eternal life. I have eternal life. I've not conquered death, but Jesus did it for me. 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus or through the truth that we find in the message of the gospel. Jesus died so we don't have to. Verse 11, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Number four, the end result of our faith in Christ is the ultimate eternal victory. We see it in verse 11 and 12. Verse 12 says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. It says it's because of this, because of the message, because of my ministry, because of preaching the uncompromised gospel. I suffer these things. He's going to die. And he says this, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Still, still, Paul, you're still not ashamed. Nope. Because I've seen so many people pass from death to life. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Boy, you know what? They ought to make a song out of that. Now, the word commit means to deposit. And there's some debate on what he's talking about he committed to here or what did he commit to the Lord. I believe this. I think Paul was resting in the fact that he had committed his future on earth, whatever that was going to be, and his eternal destiny to the Lord. In other words, Lord, I'm in your hands completely. Here and there, I'm in your hands See, the persecution didn't faze Paul because he had a sound mind. Do we get it? He was thinking clearly. So it didn't bother him. He lived his Christian life the way he did. All the suffering and the persecution he went through, he did it because there was something bigger than him at stake. It was the souls of men. He had a sound mind. And that's why he wasn't ashamed. He had an eye on the Savior and what the future holds in verse 12. Isn't that where the joy and the victory is? He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That day, okay? I think it's, he's referring to the day he would see the Lord. He didn't know exactly when it would be. He figured it was going to be soon. Chapter 4, he makes that clear. But who knows? God can do other things too. But the truth of it is this. Even if they took his physical life, they couldn't take his eternal life. That was a sealed gift promised by God. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. My future is in God's hands. Therefore, I'm not ashamed. His future was as bright as the promises of God. And so is ours, folks. Listen, we need to be people who are, yes, very concerned. And yes, a burden for souls is a right thing. But at the same time, we can have the joy of the Lord knowing we have the truth. And if I spend my life as a Christian on this, it's the best investment I can ever make. One more passage. John chapter 6. Turn there with me. Possibly you may have come today and you've never heard any of this before, that salvation's a gift, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sins and rose from the grave, he gives you everlasting life. But it is that everlasting life. And he gives us this promise. He will never lose us nor cast us out once we've come to him by faith. See, folks, eternal security, once saved, always saved, is not a separate doctrine from salvation. If you're not saved forever, you're not saved at all. 
Jesus only saves one way, and it's completely forever for all eternity. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise, in no way cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. If today you will come to Jesus Christ, in other words, you come to him, you trust in him as your savior. He says he will never cast you out, verse 37, verse 39. He will never lose you. You might say, well, how can I be sure? Here you go. It's verse 38. He is the perfect son of God who could never disobey his father. And his father's will was that anyone who comes by faith that he would never lose him. So we are as secure as Jesus is obedient to the father. It's as good as it gets. How secure am I? How can I be sure I'm not going to go to hell? Well, because I came to Jesus by faith and he said, if I came to him, he would never lose me. He would never cast me out. And he promised that because he was being obedient to the Father and seeing Jesus can't sin or fail, I know it's a fact. So you mean to say you know you're going to heaven simply because you're resting in the promise and the obedience of Jesus? Yeah, that's what it says. I'm going to heaven. And you know what? I'm not ashamed of that message because it's all about Jesus and it's not about me. He cannot fail, I can fail. If you've never trusted in him as your savior today, would you please put your faith in Jesus Christ? Once you do, you're saved forever. Okay, people say, well, do you have to keep trusting in him, trusting? No, no, no. He does the saving. He does the keeping. You just come. That's all there is to it. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.